First Peter. Let's, uh, let's dig in, let's pray, and then we'll study. Father, we pray this day that as we come to your word that you would bless us richly. We pray that your word would produce fruit in our hearts. May our hearts be soft. May they be teachable, willing and able to learn. May our minds be focused using the, the capacities you've given us to, to learn more of you and to understand you better. But above all else, Lord, we pray that you would reveal yourself today, that you would reveal your name through your word. You would show who you are, that we might reflect your glory. Father, may your will be done this day, we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, First Peter, we are now in chapter 1, and we are storming through, and we are in verse 8 now. Verses 8 and 9 today. I will give you an advance warning. Today, as we hit the first Peter verses 8 and 9, we are going to spend a, the bulk of our time elsewhere in Scripture. When there are times when we come to certain verses and passages, when they are referencing other things, that we need to know these other things so that we know what's going on. I say this all the time, but uh, if you've ever watched two or three seasons of your favorite TV show, and then your spouse or your friend or your kid or whoever comes and sits next to you in the middle of midway through season four and says, who's that person? What's going on here? Why are they doing this and that? Then uh, you know, uh, how, firstly, how irritating that can be. And secondly, you know uh, how how essential it is to understand what's going on to know what's gone before. And we as Christians um, in this day and age are woefully ignorant of our Bibles, but in particular we are woefully ignorant of our Old Testaments. And it shows in the way that we don't understand our New Testaments. And I'm on a mission to try and correct that, which is part of the reason why we're spending four or five years or so teaching through Isaiah in the evenings. And this morning... I want to uh, unpack a thread for you that is said in this verse, in this passage. So let's, let's read through this, and then at least you'll see where I'm going with it. Um, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you, do, uh, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and fill with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Okay, so let's get our context again first. Peter has been talking about this salvation that we have, and he's been talking about it specifically in the context of suffering. The solidity and the assurance of our salvation, and how in the suffering in this life, our eyes should be on what is to come. And it's one big long sentence in chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. When he comes to verse 6, he speaks of rejoicing. In this you rejoice. You rejoice in this salvation, in this hope that we have, in this inheritance we have that can never be taken away. We rejoice in this. And then as we'll see today in verse, uh, verse 8, again it talks about rejoicing. This is that thing I call an inclusio that I prefer to call a sandwich normally, that you have rejoicing at the beginning and you have rejoicing at the end. And in the middle, we have three althoughs. We rejoice, although, although, now for a little while, we've been grieved by various trials. We rejoice, although we have not seen him. And we rejoice, although we do not now see him. Now, today, in this day and age, when you want to emphasize something... You, uh, you might use bold or italics. Or if you're shouting on the internet, you might put it in capital letters. There's various ways of doing it. But when these original texts were written, they didn't have that methodology. Those options weren't available to them. And so sometimes structuring the passage in, in this kind of way was a way of bolding or emphasizing the middle of the sandwich. And so when we come here and we've got this rejoicing at one end and rejoicing at the other end and these althoughs, the middle although is really the focus of this little section. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And so the emphasis now shifts from where we were two weeks ago, from the grieving, from the trials, to the fact that in the midst of these trials, in the midst of this hope, 
in the midst of this rejoicing, in the midst of all of this, we don't see Christ. Peter, of course, did see him. Something he's going to speak about in his writings. But, but most of the people he's writing to are they're outside, the Jews who are outside the land, and they haven't physically seen Christ. They're going on the basis of faith, of what's been told to them. And so he emphasizes this fact that they have not seen him. Now, this is, this is reminiscent of a thread that runs through the Bible. So I'm going to take you now to the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus. If you turn with me, because we are going to spend a bit of time there. Exodus 33 and 34. From Exodus, we're going to go to John's Gospel, chapter 1. And then we're going to go to the end of John's Gospel, which is what Michael read for us this morning. And then we're going to go to 1 Peter and see how this whole thread comes through and runs into 1 Peter. So that's where we're going, okay? All right. So Exodus 33 and 34. For those of you who don't yet know, I know many of you who've been here for several years with me have turned to this passage so many times it's probably all wrinkled in your Bibles. But I make no apologies for that. Exodus 33 and 34 is absolutely foundational to the entire revelation, not just of Exodus, not just of the Old Testament, but of the whole scripture. One uh, person uh, who, who I uh, respect highly, um, Dr. Varner, from, I know many of you know him, has said that he, he believes that Exodus 33 and 34, that essentially the whole book of the Psalms is an exposition of Exodus 33 and 34. It, it's an exposition of the character of God that is revealed here. So in Exodus 33 and 34, what's going on? Uh, they've, Moses has gone up the mountain, and he's come down and he's found the golden calf. And so the, the, the tablet stone have been broken, and he's having to, the law is essentially being given a second time. And in this context, God... Uh, and knowing God, which is essentially the point of the law, becomes the focus. And Moses wants to see God. And so the Lord says to Moses, um, let's, no, let's pick up verse 18. Moses says, he says to God, please show me your glory. So Moses' request is for him to see the glory of God, right? Now this, this in, in, at first glance, this seems astonishingly selfish, Okay, Moses went to the tent of meeting. There was this tent outside the camp where Moses would go in, the presence of God was there, and, and Moses would meet with God. Nobody else got to do that. Moses had seen the glory of God in this just astonishing way. Can you imagine? Just, just picture it. All you, you sci-fi nerds will be able to picture this very easily. But just, just picture Moses walking into the tent and this big cloud descending and coming and going into the tent. And all the Israelites, you know, hundreds of thousands of them, if not more, are all there in the, in the camp looking out at this, this cloud descending from heaven, going into this tent, and Moses just walking in. I mean, it's just bizarre. But this, is, this was the privilege that Moses had to see the glory of God in a way that the rest of the Israelites just didn't. God was with them, but they didn't get to see him and have relationship with him in the way that Moses did. So why does Moses say now here, show me your glory? What Moses is saying is, though I've experienced more of you than the rest of these people, I still need to know you more. This is not selfishness, friends. This is the cry of a mature believer. Every time I finish teaching a book of the Bible, I want to take all of the recordings and I want to delete them and I want to start again. True story. Every time. Because I feel like I want to know it better. I want to do a better job. I, I want to understand this text better. And you get to the end of the book and you're like, ah, oh, I wish I knew that all before I started. Let's go and start again. We, we, we always want to see more, to know more, to press on. I think one of the most dangerous things for Christians who've been saved for many years is this loss of momentum that sometimes comes in. Where, where this, this kind of death of our passion, of our love for God. That we, we need to constantly be saying in, in our prayer life, and make this your prayer in the mornings, God, show me your glory. Let me see your glory. And what we're going to see in this passage is that the revelation of God's glory is indistinguishable from the revelation of his name, which is the revelation of his character. Okay? 
So let's see this. And he said, that's God in response to Moses' plea. Uh, I will show you, uh, please show me your glory. Uh, Exodus 33, 18. In verse 19, God's response. He said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. Remember when Lord is in capital letters, it's Yahweh. It's the name of God. Okay? Can you see this? What happens here? Moses says, I want to see your glory. And God says, I'm going to show you my goodness and I'm going to reveal my name. Do you see that? It's it's not like someone saying, hey, you know what? I'd like to have some fries. And then someone shows up and says, here's some onion rings. It's not like, well, I didn't ask for that. You know, no, this is this is what is happening here is the revelation of God's glory. Seeing his goodness, seeing his name, proclaiming of his name is the manifestation of God's glory. That's so important that we get that point. And he says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. God is sovereign. If God says I'm going to be merciful, he is. If he says I'm going to be, if I'm going to be gracious, he is. And he does it to whom he chooses because he is God and we are not. That's what it means to be God. And so, right away, there is this revelation of who God is. And then he says, but, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Get get your head around this for a second, okay? When we meet someone, we see them, right? Right? If, 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 you, if you're in a, I don't know, you're a busy place, you're like in a mall or something, and you see, some, you see somebody walking from behind, and you're like, I, I, wonder, if that's, I wonder if that's Anthony. Because you, you, know, you see me, my back walking up each week as I come up to teach. You know, I think I recognize the back of that head. Maybe that's Anthony, and you're not quite sure. You know, I do that all the time, and I, and I think, is that so-and-so? And, of course, at that point, my wife always gets worried because I'm that really embarrassing person that will, that will go and say, hey, and then realize it isn't, and just not be ba- embarrassed at all. Oh, I thought you were someone else. No problem. <laughs> and she's there going, oh, ground swallowing me up. Um, so... But, you know, we, we can't really be sure if it's someone if we only see them from behind. Now, what the text is saying is this, that Moses, who's been in the tent of meeting, Moses, who's had the greatest revelation of God so far, Moses, who's asked for even more revelation of God to see even more of his glory, and God is saying, yes, I will show you more of my glory, but even at this level, you've still not seen my face. Why? Because if you do, you'll be dead. If you were to fully see who I am, if you were to see this manifestation of my glory, of my character, of of who I am, if you were to see me, you would be dead. This, by the way, is the background to Isaiah 6, and Isaiah seeing God and going, I'm done, that's it. Here we go, it's time to die. I've just seen the glory of God, that's it. That's the whole background. You, You cannot see the face of God and live. And so, God says, I'll tell you what I'll do. And I'm paraphrasing loosely here because I need to keep moving. But he t- I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll hide you away in a rock. I'll pass by. And then, as I've gone by, I'll let you just peek out and get a glimpse of my back. Now, that doesn't seem to me to be a very good basis for a relationship, right? You can have a quick look at my back as I pass by. And yet, that was greater revelation. And so this happens in chapter 34. Let's read from verse 5. Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but by whom by no means, who will by no means clear the guilty. And then we have the reference to the children's children and what have you, and that's Mosaic law, and thus doesn't apply. But isn't it interesting? We have there in that short passage, the name Yahweh said four times. Well, five if you go back to verse five. Yahweh descends, he proclaims the name of Yahweh, Yahweh passes and proclaims, and then when he does proclaim, he says, Yahweh, Yahweh. Is that five? I make that five. Five Yahwehs. 
That's really emphasizing something, folks. It's saying, this is who I am. And this is the description of God. That God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God is the God who is merciful and gracious. And the very thing that defines who he is. Yahweh, 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 Yahweh. Five Yahwehs. Who is he? Who is this God? The God who proclaims who he is. Well, proclaim is there twice. Proclaim, proclaim. Who is he? He is defined by the fact that he keeps covenants. This steadfast love is the love and the faithfulness of keeping covenants. Remember when this happened. Exodus 32, golden calf. Here's the law, and then the law's given, and then immediately they're unfaithful, golden calf. They are unfaithful immediately. The golden calf incident, by the way, because the Mosaic law is seen throughout the Old Testament as a marriage covenant, the golden calf is the equivalent of cheating with your wife on your honeymoon. That's what was going on there, essentially. And what does God do in response? He says, I now, you know now who you are. You've seen who you are. Let me show you who I am. I'm faithful. I'm loving. I'm not going to let you down. Oh, I could get lost in Exodus 34 forever. I'm going to leave it there. That's our background, right? Now turn to John 1. Turn to John 1. John's Gospel, chapter 1. And here again, I have to avoid being distracted because I will happily publicly say, this is my favorite passage of Scripture. I love the prologue of John's Gospel. Um, it's just, it's, it's magnificent, majestic. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It's just, first of all, immediately, you're in, if you're a Jew, you're in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, there's the reference to Genesis. We've also got reference to man. We've got reference to light. We've got reference to creation. This is all alluding to Genesis chapter 1. And who was in the beginning in Genesis 1? It was God. And John is giving us more detail. God was there, and then there is the Word. The Word was there. And not only was the Word there, the Word was distinct from God, and yet the Word was God. And the Word does the creating that happens. Again, linking to Genesis 1, how does God create? God says, God says, let there be light, and there is light. There is the word of God that brings about creation. Oh, so much tied up in here, but I'm going to leave that. What I want to focus on is in verse 14 and following. And the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. If you don't already know this, the word dwell is used repeatedly in John's gospel. It's a key word. John 14 talks about dwelling. John 15 talks about dwelling. This is not that word. It's a different word. It is better translated tabernacled. It is a, a, a transliteration of the Hebrew word for tabernacle. It's saying the word became flesh and he tabernacled amongst us. In the tabernacle, God dwelt. In the temple, God dwelt. And if you went to the temple, the temple didn't shine. Yet the glory of God was within it, but the, the temple and the tabernacle was a shell around the presence of God. What happened was that Jesus, the Word, who had always existed for eternity past, at a moment in history, he became flesh. In the beginning, he was but at a point in history, he became flesh. That's the incarnation. It's one of the most glorious mysteries of, of history, and it's one of the most important and fascinating things. Anyway, he becomes flesh, and he tabernacles amongst us. The glory of God is within him, and yet it's covered by the shell of his flesh. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. They've seen the glory of Jesus Christ. How have they seen the glory of Jesus Christ? It says that he was full of grace and truth. This is Exodus 33 and 34, right here, folks. If you don't understand Exodus 33 and 34, you don't understand John 1. That's why I'm linking them together, okay? Okay. We're coming to Peter. It's all coming together. Trust me, okay? 
But this is why you need Exodus first to understand John 1, okay? Because Moses says, hey, I want to see your glory. And John says, we have seen his glory. Do you see that connection? Yeah? John says, we've seen his glory. We've seen his glory. Glory of the only son, literally the unique son. And he is full of grace and truth. Now listen, when Yahweh reveals his glory to Moses, what does he do? He reveals his character, his goodness, he's gracious, he's merciful, he's long-suffering. And right there at the center of who God is, it's his steadfast love and faithfulness. Yes? He is the God who, despite the unfaithfulness of Israel, will always remain faithful. Isn't that just wonderful? I've got to get distracted just a little bit here. But we sung that song just before I came up to preach. He will hold me fast. I don't hold on to my salvation. He holds on to me. Because I am unfaithful to him far too often. But he is full of steadfast love and faithfulness. And he will never let us go. Amen? So... Jesus is described as full of grace and truth. And grace and truth here is a translation of the Exodus 34 phrase, steadfast love and faithfulness. This is a translation of those same Hebrew words that speaks of God's covenant-keeping love. Now, this is, this is nothing less than extraordinary, okay? What it's saying is, when it comes to covenant-keeping love, Jesus is full. There, there, is, there is no, you, you, you know, are, are you faithful as a person? Well, I, I don't cheat on my spouse. I do my taxes honestly. Okay, so you're, you're faithful than, more faithful than a lot of people. And we might go up the charts of faithfulness. We might go up the charts of, of faithful covenant-keeping love. And, and where are we going to find at the very top? What are we going to find right there? We're going to find Jesus. Can you go above that? You can't go above that because he is full of grace and truth. Does everybody understand that, right? And who describes himself on the basis of being full of grace and truth? That would be God. And Jesus, we're told, has revealed his glory, and his glory reveals that he's full of grace and truth. This is as much a statement of the deity of Jesus Christ as John 1 verse 1 is. Jesus is the fullest expression. So Moses is there saying, I want to see your glory, God. And God says, this is who I am. And John says, we've seen his glory because we've seen Jesus. And when seeing Jesus, we've seen that he is the fullest expression of covenant-keeping love that there is. As I'm going through this, I can't help but resist telling you this. I know a few of you have heard this before. But it's interesting that John is repeating the word glory here. The word glory from Exodus 34. The glory of God. He's talking about that, yes? And it's a central theme for John in his gospel. There was an incident in the life of Christ where Jesus, for one brief moment, has this tabernacle, this shell, this he tabernacled amongst us. He has the tabernacle of his flesh removed temporarily, and the disciples get to see his glory. Not all the disciples, just the chosen few of the chosen few. And we call that event the transfiguration. And one of those chosen disciples who got to see that event was John. And yet, it's the only gospel that that story is not in. You're like, John, you need to rewrite your gospel, pal. You're writing about the glory of God, the glory of God, the glory of God. It's a central theme. And you got to see the glory of a transfiguration. And you haven't even put it in your gospel? Did you forget? No, this is what happened. For John, glory is not the transfiguration. And if he puts the transfiguration in his gospel, he detracts from his whole theme, which is that glory is Exodus 34 glory. Glory is the revelation of God and his character. And the key moment in John's gospel with regards to glory is when Judas betrays Jesus and he goes out into the night to go and betray Christ. Jesus then says, Now, now the time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. See, glory isn't seen on the Mount of Transfiguration. Glory is seen at the cross. Why? Because the glory of God is the revelation of his character. You want to know how faithful God is? 
Do you want to know how loving he is? Forget, forget re-giving the law after a golden calf. He came and became a man and dies on a cross to satisfy the wrath of God against the sins that a sinner like me, who didn't even care, had committed. So that I could be reconciled to him and enjoy him for eternity. That's full of grace and truth right there. That's covenant-keeping love. And that's why Jesus is God. That is the glory that John speaks of. Isn't this stuff great? Anyway, at the end of this prologue, it ends, and it says, for we've, uh, I'm reading for now from uh, verse 16, and from his fullness, this fullness of grace and truth, we have all received grace upon grace. Literally, grace in place of grace. You had grace with Moses. God blessed you through the old covenant, but now that has been replaced by a greater grace. Why? Because the fullness of covenant love has been revealed and we get grace from that fullness. For the law was given through Moses and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That's the the replacement. Now look at this last verse. This is crucial. No one has ever seen God. Now a lot of translations do this differently, so I'm going to break it down for you very slowly. It's a difficult verse to read. Let's break it down, okay? No one has ever seen God. Where does that take us back to? Exodus 33 and 34. No one can see my face. They will surely die, right? So no one's seen God. That's that's an agreement with Exodus 33 and 34. Then, I love the use of the semicolon and the ESV here, but then after that it says, the only God who is at the Father's side. Can you see that? So there is one who is also God, the unique God who is at the Father's side, so not the Father, distinct from the Father. So we have at the end of the John's prologue what we had at the beginning. We have the Word, Jesus, being God and yet being distinct from the Father. Here, the Father, no one's seen him, no one can see God, and yet there is one who is God, the only God, the unique God, who is at the Father's side, he's distinct from the Father. Yes? So we've got Jesus, who is God and yet distinct from the Father, just like in verse 1. And it says, he has made him known. Moses had a request. And God says, I'll give you a little bit, but not too much. Moses' request was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You don't get to see God the Father. But if you have seen Christ, you've seen the Father. Do understand, by the way, that all the medieval paintings are wrong. Jesus did not have a halo, nor did he walk a few inches off the ground. He was a typical Jewish guy. He probably had a large nose. He's probably about five foot two or five foot three. He certainly wasn't white, and his teeth hadn't been done at one of the local Californian dentists. He looked nothing like those pictures. He was just a typical, hard-working, short Jewish guy. Olive skin, probably, and... Nothing about him externally said, this must be God. I'd be very surprised if he would have made any front covers of the Palestinian Vogue or whatever. You know, he was, he, he was, he, he was, he was enclosed in this shell. But the glory of God was within him. And he made that glory known by how he lived and what he did, and ultimately his sacrifice on the cross. Now, you can see how Exodus 33 and 34 is a foundation so we understand John's prologue, right? John's prologue is the foundation for the rest of John's gospel. So now let's turn to the passage that Michael read for us this morning in John chapter 20. John chapter 20. And I'm reading uh, from verse um, uh, 24. Verse 24, I'll go halfway through where, what Michael read for us. So Jesus uh, has, has, has died. He's uh, been resurrected on the third day. And he's appeared to the disciples. But Thomas had an important engagement. Something came up. There was a clash. He was out doing something or other. And so he wasn't there. So now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples said to him, uh, told him, we have seen the Lord. Uh, The word Lord here is very important, by the way. Exodus 33 and 34, our foundation for John 1. John 1, our foundation for this passage, right? 
When it says the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, right? When I read that out to you, I said Yahweh, 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 Yahweh. Why? Because in the Hebrew, it is Yahweh. But the Jews didn't like to use the name of God in fear of blasphemy. So when they came to translate the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek, about a couple of hundred years before the time of Christ, they didn't know how to, how do you translate a name that you can't say? So they just put Lord. Lord. They used the Greek word for Lord. So when these Jews read their Old Testaments in Greek, they would come again, every time they came to the name of Yahweh, the name of God, Yahweh, they came across the word Lord. We have seen the Lord. Can you see what John's doing here? I want to see you, says Moses. I want to see your glory. And they say, we've seen the Lord. There's an implication of deity there, which is about to become clear. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, in his hands, the marks of his nails, and place my finger into the marks of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. That's quite a statement. He's saying, I'm not going to believe. You tell me he's raised from the dead, that's ridiculous. That's just ridiculous. I saw him die. We know what happened. This, this journey's come to an end. He, he was, we thought he was the Messiah, but he's died. He says, and, and now they're telling him this thing, and, and, and he, I'm, I'm sure Thomas wants to believe, and yet he's scared to believe. He doesn't want the hope to disappear. And he says, I'm not going to believe unless I see it. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. If you died just a kind of week and a half previously and all the doors are locked and you suddenly appear, I think to say peace to be with you is probably it's a good, good opener, isn't it? <laughs> I think there's a, there's a bigger theological point there, but that, that's, a, that's the, the surface level, isn't it? Calm down, guys. And he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Don't disbelieve, but believe. Uh, so many things I could get distracted by here. Jesus in his glorified body, and yet his wounds still exist. That's, a, that's an interesting conversation, perhaps, for another day. What I see most of all here is a person who said, I am not going to believe, and Jesus meets him in his lack of faith, and says, come on, let me help you believe. Isn't that just wonderful? I love that. It's my favorite part of that whole story. That a man says, I'm not going to believe this. And Jesus says, let me help you with that. It's just wonderful. It's just the heart of God, isn't it? And so he helps him to believe. And what does Thomas say in answer? He says, my Lord and my God. That's where John starts us off. Jesus is God. And by the end of the book, Thomas makes the statement, yeah, he is God. And we as the reader are supposed to have gone on that journey too. And that's just a wonderful conclusion, really, for the, for the Gospel of John before we have the last epilogue chapter. But look at what he says afterwards. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You see, everything at the end here is pointing back to the prologue at the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. No one's seen God, but the only God who is by the Father's side, in the bosom of the Father, facing the Father, uh, you know, in close fellowship with the Father, He has made Him known. These things are being brought back here now. This is another sandwich. It's another inclusio. The deity of Christ at the beginning, the deity of Christ at the end. The not seeing at the beginning and the not seeing at the end. You see, here's the thing. You don't get to see the Father or else you die. Think Raiders of the Lost Ark, faces melting off. That kind of thing, right? You don't get to see God. His glory is too great, right? But Jesus Christ, because he is the fullest expression of the covenant-keeping God, because he is himself God, that his tabernacling with us allows us, though he, his tabernacle is this shield that protects us from the glory of God, right? What was the protection from the glory of God in Exodus 34? It was the rock 
You can see the connection there. We'll do that another day. But so Jesus is shielded, shield, his, his flesh tabernacles the glory of God. But he reveals the character. The glory of God is seen far greater than Moses, far greater than the burning bush, far greater than the, the smoke coming into the tabernacle at its completion, far greater than God passing by in Exodus 33 and 34. Far greater than all of that is God showing himself through Jesus Christ on the cross. So we can't see the Father, but you can see the Son. And John says, we beheld his glory. Right? Now what's Peter doing with all of this? Peter is following the end of, what, of John's gospel. What John is doing here is he's taking us from the disciples to beyond the disciples. He does this in his gospel in multiple different ways, but I'm keeping an eye on the clock, so we'll just leave it to this one. He, he, what he does is this. He says... You can't see the Father, but we see the Father through the Son. The disciples saw the Son, and they saw the cross, but we don't get to do that. The person of Jesus Christ, he died 2,000 years ago. He came back from the dead, he was resurrected, but then he was sent to heaven. And he's now seated at the right hand of the Father. And will come again to judge the living and the dead, if you know your Apostles' Creed. So we don't see him. We, we, we can't you know, turn up to the temple in Jerusalem and go and see Jesus in the flesh. Not yet. We can't. And so what John does at the end of this gospel, like he does in a few other ways in this passage, what he does is he, he, he's taking us from the, the time of the gospels, which is a transitionary time, to the church era. And he's saying, essentially, there are going to be people for generations like Thomas who don't get to put their hand in his side that don't get to see his wounds and they're going to believe anyway and just as I had to help Thomas believe I'm going to help them believe there is, this, there is here in this whole thing where we go from the father being unseeable to the father being seen through Christ to in a sense Christ being unseeable because he's no longer here and yet we see him with eyes of faith, and hence, blessed are those who believe. That's our background to 1 Peter 1 and verse 8. I thought it would be a fun journey to take you on. But let's go back to 1 Peter and verse 8. I think that when you read these verses now, with all of this running around your head, Exodus 33, Exodus 34, John chapter 1, John chapter 20, that all of this is really what the, the, the hearers of this letter would have had in their heads as well, I believe. I'm not going to get into the whole, was John's gospel written before First Peter? Would they have had copies? Uh, suffice to say, the traditions of John's gospel was, would have been circulating orally for decades in advance. So I think that this would have all been in their heads already as they read this. And hopefully now it's in your head. So let's read again afresh. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. You see, this is a pointing back to Thomas. You guys are Thomases. You don't see him now. You don't see him now, but you still love him. The covenant-keeping love that he shows to us, that we are trying to respond in that covenant by loving him back. We, we, are, gonna, we are loving him. The believing is the faithfulness of that covenant. There is this, this trust. Though you not see him, you believe in him. I think the, I, I've got the ESV here. I think I prefer the New American Standards translation where rather than the believe and you rejoice, I think the, 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 the contrast is actually early. I think the, the New American Standards says something along the lines of um, all, uh, you, you, although you don't see, but you do believe. There's a but there before the believe. And that's a better way of translating it. He's saying, you, you don't see him, but you still believe. You are in the position of Thomas. Though, be, though you don't see him, you still believe him. And you have this rejoicing. You have a rejoicing of joy that is inexpressible. You see, we may not be able to see Jesus face to face like John did. But we can still see his glory. And we see the glory of Jesus Christ... Not in some, some charismatic experience of something visual in passing us by. No, no, no. 
We see the glory of Christ when we get to know him better. When we get to understand his character better. Now, put this all into the context and framework of 1 Peter, okay? 1 Peter is a letter to Christians who are about to go through the most intense persecutions that are way beyond what any of us will probably ever experience. And he's just grounding them in these truths. And I, I keep saying this to you, you know, I know that when I went, started on the journey of the mo- hardships in my life that I never thought I would go through, there were times when I never thought I would make it, I, I knew these truths, I knew them, but I didn't know them well enough. And my prayer for you as a church is that you would know them better than I did. I just want to tell you again and again that God is sovereign and God is good until you're so bored of hearing it that you want me to shut up. And then I'm going to say it some more. I want to tell you that God is a covenant-keeping God and his loving faithfulness will endure forever. And I want to tell you again and again and again and again because when the darkness hits, every thought that naturally will come into your head is the opposite of that. You will think he's forsaken you. You will say, well, I'm not sure how I can, you know. I was talking with a, with a dear friend this week who is going through a really horrific time. And he's, like, I, he's just trying to reconcile, you know, if God's sovereign and, and then there's this situation in my life. And it is, it's a horrendous thing to work through. And so we just want to drill it into our heads. We want to drill it into our children's heads. We, just want, we want to just be absolutely certain that we understand that Jesus is full of grace and truth. That he is a covenant-keeping God. That nothing will ever separate us. That this is who he is. And maturing is us just getting those truths just just ground ever deeper into our hearts, tattooed ever more clearly onto our hearts so that they can never be removed by no trial, by no darkness, by no circumstance, that nothing will shake us from these core beliefs. We need to see him and see who he is, and we do it through the pages of Scripture. And this is why our approach to Bible here is not a, you know, a sermon on five steps to this and seven steps to that and trying to help with this. We, we just want to show you what the Bible says about God. We want to show you what the scriptures say about Jesus Christ. Why? Because when you see his glory, you will be transformed. And you need to see his glory because trials are an unavoidable part of the Christian life. We saw last time we were in First Peter that the trials test our faith like fire. And there is no way around that. And so we want to go into the fire knowing God is sovereign, God is good. Jesus Christ is the fullest expression of the Father. He will never leave me nor forsake me. We want to know these things. And he is encouraging them and saying, you haven't seen him, you love him. You can't right now. Right now, why does he emphasize the now? Because everything else he's saying is, he's saying, there's a time coming when you will. He's pointing to that future grace. He says, you can't see him now, but, but you believe. And believing, literally what the text says here, believing you rejoice. Because you believe you rejoice. We've got to be people who can rejoice in the midst of suffering. Not rejoice because of suffering. There is no hint of that sadistic nonsense in Scripture that somehow, oh, trials, whoopee-doo-doo, I need a bit more sanctification. Give me some more trials, Lord. I pray that God would be merciful and spare us from each and every trial that we can possibly be spared from. But we will go through trials. And God does have a purpose in each and every one of them. And we need to be there when, when whether it's sickness, whether it's, it's cancers or broken marriages or, or um, desertion or, or death, or whatever uh, tragic circumstances of life come our way. We want to be people who in the midst of that say, well, this sucks, but God is good. God is so good. He is, he is in control. My, my, my Father in heaven has allowed this to happen. This is my furnace. God, what, what do you want from me? How do I walk through this? Teach me to be faithful in the midst of this. Show my faith. Glorify yourself through me and my suffering. We want to be those people.
We must be those people. I don't want to do, I, spoiler alert, okay, a little spoiler, I don't want to spoil it too much. But when you get to chapter 3 of this book, and you get to a very famous passage about having an answer for those who, who inquire, and people use that in apologetics, you know, um, chapter 3 and verse 15, I think it is, um, Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yes? You familiar with that passage? Apologists love that passage. It's not about apologetics. It's got nothing to do with apologetics. It's always taken out of context. You know, when you, when you say to someone on the street, excuse me, person on the street who I've never met before, let me tell you about Jesus. That's not what this verse is talking about. What it's talking about is when you go through the fire and you come through the fire, and you're still rejoicing, and you're still glorifying God, people are going to say, what the heck is wrong with you? Let me tell you what's wrong with me. In fact, you might find it's actually something that's very right with me. Let me tell you why I have a hope that allows me to rejoice when life sucks. Let me tell you why I am able to, to be able to glorify my God and to trust him in the midst of this horrific trial. That's what's going on here. So we don't see him, but we believe and we love and we rejoice. The joy that is inexpressible. And look at this lovely little bit at the end of verse 8. Our joy is inexpressible. And what else is our joy? It is filled with glory. That word again, huh? That's a characteristic of joy. And I think this links all of these things that we've seen this morning, all of these passages, it links them together. It, it's saying, do you know where that joy comes from? It comes because the joy is full of glory. Glory. Not your glory. The glory of God. When God's revelation of himself to you is sufficiently big, when, it's, when you're full of that glory of his revelation, that's when you can rejoice in the midst of sufferings. You see, uh, it breaks my heart saying this because, you know, I'm condemning myself and the path that I've walked over the years. And, and, and you know, uh, but, you know, it's so easy in our trials to focus on our trials and to say, the reason I can't rejoice is because this is so bad. And you guys know me, I hope, by now. And we talked about lament, and I'm all for acknowledgement. I'm all for people just pouring their hearts out. I'm all for people saying, this really sucks at the top of their voice. I'm all for that, and that's necessary, and it's biblical. But there comes a point where we have to recognize that if we can't rejoice, not in our trials, but in the midst of our trials, the problem is not our trials. The problem is our lack of seeing the glory of God. And that's a horrible truth to try and get our heads around when we're suffering. It's very difficult. And that's why I want you to get your heads around it now. I want it to be solidified in your hearts now. So that when trials come, the glory of God remains. And so... We are rejoicing and we are obtaining, verse 9, the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. He's not saying to them, you're not saved, go through some trials, see how things pan out. If you're still rejoicing in the trials, then you're saved. That's not what he's saying. He's again talking about salvation in a future sense. Because you are Christians, because you are saved past tense, you go through this, that God works his purposes out so that you ultimately will have the full fruition of salvation. Glorified bodies. No longer aging. No longer sick. No longer suffering. No more sin in our hearts, in our lives. No ungodly thoughts that we have to control or repent of. Just God's work in us complete. Isn't that just the most majestic thing? That, that's where we're going. And so Peter, as he, as he comes to the end of verse 9, he does what he did in the earlier verses, and he essentially says this. Look, and then, Let me just sum this whole thing up, and we're done. Okay? He's saying this. He says, look, 
you haven't seen Jesus. You haven't had the privilege that I've had, but yet you've believed. And you, because you are able to behold his glory to some degree, though you have literally not seen him, you're still beholding his glory. You, you can be able to rejoice in the midst of the trials that come. And when these trials come, know that what they're doing is they're working God's purpose to the ultimate end, which is the salvation of your soul. Soul here being not talking just about your spiritual life, but talking in the sense of the Hebrew nefesh, the, um, the, the soul in the sense of the whole of your being, that we will be restored in mind and body and soul and those 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 things that frustrate us and those trials that we walk through and the parts of us that don't work as they should it will all be resolved but now for a little while we walk through the fire my prayer for us all is simply this as the fire rages in the trials of life May God's glory burn even brighter in our hearts. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you, Lord. We thank you that whatever it is that we have to walk through, you are good and you are sovereign. There are no doubt circumstances, trials, and grievous wounds that can be done to us that we could walk through where we just can't see any good. But we know that the greatest sin in the whole of history was the murder of your son. And yet through that darkest of moments comes the greatest of glories. In our trials, in our fire, may we look at the cross. May we see the glory of the Son, full of grace and truth. And may we trust. And may we trust. And may we trust. Amen.